So number one, Christians who know their Bible know it's a sin to get drunk. Number two, they know it's a sin to use strong drink. The priests in Leviticus 10 were told to avoid strong drink. In Proverbs 20, Solomon calls strong drink a brawler. In chapter 31, he says, rulers are not to use it lest they pervert judgment. In Isaiah 24, Isaiah says, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. It seems sweet in the beginning, but it's bitter in the end. Micah, the prophet, tells us in chapter 2, it's the false prophet who will say, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine. The use of strong drink is forbidden because it was damaging, it was intoxicating, and it was addictive. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Miracle at Cana. Thus far, Pastor Carl has addressed the site of the miracle in verse 1 and the situation for the miracle found in verses 3 through 5. Today, he will conclude with the significance from the miracle, which can be found in verse 6 through 11. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. But notice what he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Literally, the Greek text reads, what is it to me? And to you. Kind of an awkward phrase for us, not for them. The Greek scholar Wist paraphrases it What is it to us? No, not what is it to me, but what is it to me and to you? What is it to us? You want me to prove that I am the Messiah. You want me to do this miracle now. For whatever reason, you want me to do it. But he says, My hour has not yet come. Now, when you read that, what do you mean? My hour has not yet come. It seems to me that it has come. In fact, he's going to go ahead and he's going to do the miracle. Yes, he does the miracle in the sense that he meets the request, but he does not do it in a public, open fashion, proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Our Lord's first miracle was not a spectacular event that everyone witnessed. In fact, as you read the chapter carefully, just Mary, the disciples, and the servants knew what had happened. Neither the guests, for that matter, not even the head waiter knew where the wine came from. In fact, he's going to call the groomsmen and he's going to compliment him. So his first miracle is really a very quiet event in contrast to his last public miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is the most public of all. And after, of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead on that week, he comes into Jerusalem and he presents himself to Israel formally as her Messiah. But for now, it's not the time to publicly prove that. My hour has not yet come. And so John introduces us to this very important phrase, my hour or the hour. You're going to see it all the way through the gospel to demonstrate that the Lord Jesus was living on a divine timetable set for him by the Father. Repeatedly, he'll say, it's not time. My hour hasn't come until we come to that high priestly prayer just before his crucifixion where he will say, the Father, the hour has come. But for now, my hour has not come. The thought is, Mary, you and I aren't on the same wavelength right now. This is not a messianic moment. He's giving her a gentle rebuke of sorts. Now, Mary is presuming on a family tie that this is the one she carried in her womb. 
But Christ has now entered into that purpose for which the Father had sent him. He's begun his public ministry. He's already called his disciples. But his hour in terms of God's timetable for his life is not what Mary thought. And everything, even family ties, even a desire to have possibly God's name exonerated is secondary to the timetable that God has set for the Son of God. And so while Mary understands this is indeed a gentle rebuke, she's going to relate to him now not primarily as the mother, but she's going to come to him as a believer She's going to come to him as Lord. Now, she understands, of course, her son's going to do something. That's obvious from verse 5. Look at it. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, that's the best advice I think you could give any person. Whatever Christ says, do it. She knew that Jesus cared about this situation and that he would take action in his own way. So she tells the servants to obey his instructions. Now in verse 3, she's appealing to him as mother, and she's gently rebuked. Now she responds as a believer, and he's going to honor her faith. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she does know that he is going to do something. By the way, she's a great model for us. Do what he says, and trust him. Just trust and believe in him. You see this woman, her appearances are very few in the Gospels. But whenever you see her, my, what a wonderful lady she is. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now the Lord used what was available, as he always does. He said to Moses, what's in your hand? It's a stick. Well, it's going to become a staff, a symbol of divine authority to Pharaoh and all the people. He takes a boy's lunch bag and he fed 5,000. Here there are six stone water pots and he's going to use them to perform a miracle. Now, they're not the typical clay pot. They're stone pots. And that's significant because they're used for purification. They were not impervious or as impervious like uh, earthenware, clayware, because these were used for purification. You know the Jews we're very concerned about outward purification. You read Mark chapter 7. It's a good illustration of how they would pour water over people's hands to purify their hands before they partook of the food in their mouth. And the Pharisees came to Christ and said, look, your disciples don't wash their hands in the right way. They're not going through all the formations correctly. And Jesus, of course, said, well, what defiles a man is not what he takes the hand and then puts into his mouth. What really defiles a man is what comes out of his heart. That's the real problem. Not external, but internal. The external ceremonial washings of the Old Testament could never cleanse anyone. They were just symbolic of man's ultimate need for internal cleansing. So Jesus says here in verse 7, Fill the water pots with water. They fill them up to the brim. That makes all reading this miracle makes it very clear. Nothing but water. Nothing else can be added. It's water right up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. They carried to the head waiter, what we might call the the maitre d' or the head caterer. He's the person ultimately over the whole thing. And when the head waiter, verse 9, tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, 
Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, the master of the banquet didn't know the origin of the wine, but he recognized the quality of the wine. By the way, the servants knew its origin, and that's very often true. They knew what the head honcho didn't know, and the Lord is going to show that later in this gospel. Let me say parenthetically, if you want to be on the inside spiritually, become a servant. Servants always know the secrets. It's true in the White House, true in the governor's mansion. Servants know more than the people in the neighborhood typically know. They know it more in the church. And when we come to John chapter 15, the Lord is going to teach that very, very simple truth. If you want to be on the inner circle, be a servant because he calls servants his friends. But back to the point that the head waiter makes. People typically serve the best food and the best drink at the beginning of a feast. And at the end of the feast, when they start running low on roast beef sandwiches, they pull out the bologna. When the Coca-Cola and the uh, Dr. Pepper is gone, they break out Czech Cola and Dr. Wiz. And, and so the head waiter, he tasted the wine Jesus made, something superior in flavor to anything they had had, and he calls the bridegroom and he questions him on it. By the way, this miracle of changing water into wine has been the center of controversy for some time. In fact, even non-Christians will often use this passage to justify their ungodly lifestyle. You know there's three verses in the sinner's Bible. God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Judge not lest you be judged. And Jesus made wine. And so they argue that the people here were so high, so drunk, that the poor wine that is typically served at the end when people are drunk and they can't tell the difference, that this is kind of a reversal of order. Friend, I want to tell you that interpretation is blasphemous to the Son of God. To say that the Lord Jesus knew that, 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 that he was in a situation where this head waiter perceives, I don't understand it. People are high as a kite right now. Why are you serving the best now? They wouldn't know it. That's what you're saying in that interpretation. Now follow very closely. You see this word here, have drunk freely. It's the Greek word, methuthosine. It can indeed refer to intoxication. But it can also refer to someone who's drunk to the point where they are satisfied. It could refer in the context of water. There are numerous examples in the Greek Bible where the word is used and it has absolutely nothing to do with intoxication but drinking to the point where you're satisfied. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you'll note out there in the margin an alternate reading. It says, have become drunk. And those marginal notes are very helpful sometimes. Sometimes if there's a play on word in the Greek text, they'll note that out in the margin. Or sometimes if there's a literal rendering, it will say L-I-T, and it will give you the literal rendering of what has been said. Here they're giving the alternate reading because they recognize that this Greek verb can refer to intoxication, or it can refer to someone who has drank to the point where he's just been satisfied. And of course, they don't go with the alternate reading. They put in the body of the text that when men have drunk freely, the King James says, have drunk well. In fact, I looked at 15 English translations and only one rendered it with the idea of intoxication. 
And so here's the point, though. It's not a big deal to serve the bologna sandwiches and the Czech cola when people have eaten and drunk to the point they're satisfied. That's the point. But it's blasphemous to argue that Christ was involved in a situation where men were drunk and now he was going to make them drunker. And understand, too, the emphasis of this miracle is not on the kind of wine, but on the quality of wine, on the flavor of the wine. And let me just say that the focus of this sermon itself is not really to debate that this morning. We could do that. And let me just say parenthetically, there are two kinds of wine that you will find in Holy Scripture, intoxicating wine and non-intoxicating wine. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 23, 31, Solomon wrote, Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Clearly, he's talking about intoxicating wine, what he calls in chapter 21, strong drink. Obviously, there's a time when wine sparkles in the cup, speaking of fermentation, and there's a time when it doesn't sparkle in the cup. But understand, too, that God also calls unfermented, squeezed juice as wine as well. Sometimes it's called sweet wine. Sometimes in the Bible it's called new wine. Now, new wine can be used actually in both connotations, newly squeezed like grape juice or newly fermented like in Acts 2. But we have numerous references throughout the Bible of freshly pressed juice of the grape that's not fermented that God calls wine. Now here, in Proverbs, he speaks of wine that bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Now I hope you understand that the joy and the refreshment that the Lord Jesus gives has no serpent in it. And let me just say, one of the reasons I believe this happens to be fresh is because of the process that makes wine intoxicating. It's called fermentation. Understand, before the fall... There was no fermentation. Fermentation is a byproduct of the fall. In Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, all of the creation now has become a slave to corruption. And I happen to believe that there was no fallenness in any of Jesus' miracles. I happen to believe that this was pure wine, not polluted wine. That intoxication is Satan's substitute for the joy that Christ gives. But let's just say for the sake of argument... It's fermented wine. Well, let me first say there's absolutely nothing in this context that indicates that anyone here at this family affair lacks anything but sobriety. Now, please, don't use this miracle as a justification for social drinking and the use of alcoholic beverages. I have people, Christian people, come to me who like their liquor. They say, well, Jesus turned the water into wine. Listen, if you're going to use this passage of Jesus turning the water into wine as a justification for your drinking, you might as well use it as a justification for bootlegging and making a still. In fact, if you want to follow his example, follow the example in Matthew 26, 29, where it tells me he's a teetotaler and he'll never again drink from the fruit of the vine until he sits down in glory and he drinks it with us. But understand, those people who know their Bible. Those people who know their Bible, number one, they know it's a sin to get drunk. You know that. I hope you do. And don't call drunkards alcoholics. They're not alcoholics. 
We have so sterilized sin in our day. We call fornication, young people are fornicating, sexually active. We call homosexuality an alternative lifestyle. And we call drunkards alcoholics. And we call alcoholism or drunkenness a disease. It's not a disease. If it were a disease, you would not be morally accountable for it. And God is very clear that drunkards have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So number one, Christians who know their Bible know it's a sin to get drunk. Number two, they know it's a sin to use strong drink. The priests in Leviticus 10 were told to avoid strong drink. In Proverbs 20, Solomon calls strong drink a brawler. In chapter 31, he says, rulers are not to use it lest they pervert judge, judgment. In Isaiah 24, Isaiah says, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. It seems sweet in the beginning, but it's bitter in the end. Micah, the prophet, tells us in chapter 2, it's the false prophet who will say, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine. The use of strong drink is forbidden because it was damaging, it was intoxicating, and it was addictive. Now understand how they used wine in the first century. What is strong drink? Is it whiskey? Is it vodka? No, those things didn't come until centuries later, long after the Bible was finished. Strong drink was naturally fermented wine. How do we know that? Well, you go back to its cultural context. Not to mention we have literature outside of the Bible that further defines it for us. That typically they would take their wine and they would mix it four parts water to one part wine. Why did they do that? Because the water would typically make you sick. And it was very time consuming to continually boil it. And so they would just add some wine to the water. It was a diluted water and the wine would kill all the bacteria. The Didache is a second century A.D. pastoral manual. And very explicitly in that work, lest you be guilty of using strong drink, those early pastors were told, mix it four parts water to one part wine. The Talmud, a, a second century B.C. rabbinical manual. Remember, Passover came the same time every year. By the time we celebrate Easter. Fresh grape juice wasn't available at that time in Israel. Lest you be guilty of using strong drink, mix it four parts water, one part wine, when you celebrate the Passover meal. And so it was no longer considered strong drink. Not to mention, lay that aside. So what, number one, there's not a lot of mystery in this thing today. The wine, forget the Liquors like whiskey and vodka, just the wine and the beer is its package, is considered strong drink and forbidden by Scripture. The one exception in that in Proverbs 31, where God says you can give it to a dying man. Not to mention that mature Christians who know their Bibles consider drinking in the context of passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do to the glory of God. And does it really glorify God in our day? Or Romans 14, 21 that tells us we're not to cause a brother to stumble in using wine. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 where it says abstain from every appearance of evil. Some things are not evil, but they appear to be evil. I want to tell you, the alcohol industry doesn't just appear to be evil. It is evil. It is a wicked industry in our day, destroying the lives of millions of people. Oh, I'm reminded of the drunken construction worker who was converted, had a very vocal witness for Christ. And one of his friends trying to trap him, he said, ah, do you believe that Jesus turned the water into wine? 
He said, of course I do. I also know in addition to turning the water into wine, he turned the wine into shoes and food and shoes for my children's feet. Now, abstinence is not the focus of this sermon. You want a sermon on it? I got a bunch you can listen to. (laughs) But don't use this passage of Scripture in a blasphemous way to somehow incriminate our Lord in sinful behavior. And don't use it as a justification for social drinking. Now, that brings me to the last point. What is the significance of this miracle? Let's think about the significance from the miracle. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, remember, there are different words in the Greek to describe a miracle. But this is the word that refers to a miracle with a message. A lot of miracles Jesus did, John said. But the miracles that I have selected, I selected because there's a deeper meaning behind the miracle. And many times Jesus, after he does the miracles in John's gospel, will preach a sermon. And the miracles that he does where a sermon is not preached, it's further delineated apart from the immediate context as to their significance. So if the Lord Jesus were to preach a sermon after turning the water into wine, what would he have said? Well, for one thing, I think he probably would have told the people that the world's joy always runs out. But he gives a new, perfect, tasting, and ever-satisfying joy. Now, remember, these water pots were used for external cleansing. They couldn't provide internal cleansing. They couldn't provide internal joy. They represented the traditional religion of the people. And remember, Jesus asked the servants to fill the pots to the brim. And in this miracle... The Lord brought fullness where there was emptiness. He brought joy where there was disappointment. He brought something for the inside when in the past what was filled in those pots was just for the outside. Listen, you can have all kinds of external religion, but if it doesn't touch the heart, it doesn't mean anything. I see some of these religious leaders in the world today, and it seems like every time I see some of these guys, they just look like sourpusses. I mean, they do. Have you ever noticed some of these guys? Never a smile on their face. Always grim, straight-faced. Oh, there's a time to be sober. Read Matthew 23, the serious side of Christ. But there's also a time to celebrate and to be joyous. If Nehemiah could say in the Old Covenant, the joy of the Lord is our strength, what can we say under this New Covenant? That's the first reminder I get from this miracle. Secondly, I also learned from this miracle that while the world offers the best first, once you get hooked, typically it starts to get worse. But Christ, what he offers, is the best until one day it will become the very finest in his eternal kingdom. Say the wine at the beginning of this feast was inferior. And not only was it inferior, it was limited. But Jesus provides not just quality, he provides quantity. We're told of six water pots between 20 and 20 and 30 gallons each, or they're about 20 to 25 gallons, or what does it say, 20 to 30? Uh, yeah, so you can average, you can average it, it's about 25 gallons average. So if you average it, you got at least 150 gallons of wine here. If everybody had just one cup, that's about 2,400 cups. There was an abundance here. Now, there weren't that many folks in the wedding, maybe 100 here. I mean, this is a small town. 
understand the size of some of these towns in the first century. There weren't 2,400 people in Bethlehem at this time. Wine to spare. And it's a graphic illustration of what he will later explain in John 7. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his inner person shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus will speak of the abundant life he brings. Oh, you go to the big events and they're good at first, but they eventually kind of all lose their flavor. We went to the aquarium in Charleston. We went because you could get in for a dollar that day. And we got in there and it was just kind of exciting. I walked in and said, Audrey, get a picture of this fish over here. Look at this habitat. Or I need a photo of this. And I saw the piranhas and I told my kids about the old Tarzan movies, how those fish would just kind of eat you and just became a skeleton and nothing was left. And, you know, but after a while, I mean, there was thousands of fish. We were just kind of walking through. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting fish. That one's blue. Oh, that one's, you know, just had really not that much meaning to it. That's the way it often is in the world. Actually, we had a great time because the Lord Jesus was right there with us, fellowshipping with us. In fact, I believe this miracle that took place in human history foreshadows even a greater prophetic event yet to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when in an unfallen, resurrected body we will sit down with the Lord Jesus in heaven enjoy his fellowship. Now, Christ is in the transformation business. That's the whole purpose of these miracles in John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might find life in his name. He spoke a word. The wine was changed. That's all he had to do. But he hung on a cross that you could be forgiven. It's all ultimately, as we will see, pointing to the cross, to the one who took your place, that you could have forgiveness and fellowship with God. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy upon us. Thank you for this gospel of John recorded for us that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we might find life in his name. I pray today, Father, for someone who on the inside is empty. They've tried religion, but they've never found life because they've never really tried Christ. You said that whoever will call upon his name will be saved. You made the simple promise that if we would call upon him in faith, that he would forgive us and save us. And I wonder today if you would do that. If any man is in Christ, the Bible says he is a new creation. The old has passed away and everything has become new. Would you come as a bankrupt sinner and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone today, Father, to do that. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 877- 787-7478 and requesting program John 005. Our calling at Search of Scriptures is to lead unbelievers into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and grow believers in that relationship. If you can help support this mission with a one-time or regular gift, 
click the Give button in either the Search the Scriptures app or visit our website at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.